This episode of the MedTalk Podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation Expo, the UK and Ireland's leading event for medical device manufacturing. Save the date for MedTech Innovation Expo 2024, taking place on the 5th and 6th of June at the NEC in Birmingham. For more information, please visit www.medtechexpo.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk Podcast. I'm Ian Bolland, Group Content Manager for Rapid MedTech. This episode was a discussion recorded live at MedTech Innovation Expo on the 7th of June 2023. I was joined by a panel of regulatory experts, Laurie Rowe from Red MedTech, Fiona Maney from Medidata and Laurel Friedelhurst from LFH Regulatory as we discuss the latest news and issues facing medical device companies in the regulatory landscape, and in particular, on the UK's current and future regulatory environment. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Introducing Health Tech stage here at MedTech Innovation Expo. So, if you were with us 12 months ago, we had a live episode of the podcast about medical device regulation. Well... We thought we'd do a bit of a rerun. We've got two of the guests from last year. I've got Laurie Rowe from Red MedTech, if you've actually picked up the latest issue of the magazine, is our MedTech Innovation Expert cover girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've got Fiona Maney from Metadata, and we've got uh, a newbie in Laura Friedelhurst from LFH Regulatory. Uh, it is basically just going to be a chat about, well, where on earth are we with medical device regulation in the UK and beyond? And I'm actually going to start with our newbie, Laura, and she's not. She's giving me a very knowing look right now. Um, so you actually wrote an article for our latest issue of the magazine. Can you please bring us up to date as to where on earth we are up to? <laughs> Do we, from a UK regulatory perspective? Yeah, yeah, so I think at the moment, this is something where um, everybody's actually wondering what's going on. What do we actually need to do to allow us to enter the UK market? Um, I think, as all everybody knows, there's always been a UK MDR 2002, obviously been around since 2002, but that points out to the directives. So we have like the medical device directive, the uh, in vitro diagnostic directive, and the active implantable directive. Um, and generally, from that, you would if you comply with that, you comply with the requirements of the UK MDR 2002. Um, now, kind of going forward, it's looking at what do we actually do from a UK perspective, uh, because we have things going on in the EU with the regulatory requirements and what that looks like and what do we actually need to comply with. So at the moment, because you've actually outlined all the uncertainty there, when you actually get clients coming up to you, what what do you say to them when you actually outlined already that it's a bit of an unknown? So what, what do you do? <laughs> I think that's a great thing. And that's a really good question. It's about what, you know, what do you actually do if you're looking to enter the UK market? At the moment, we know um, that there's the potential that there's supposed to be a draft the middle of this year for us to see for the UK regular requirements and open for consultation for two months. Uh, by the end of this year, we're looking to implement by July 2024. Now, saying that it's already kind of been pushed back by a year, um, I would suggest that I think there's potential of it being pushed back further because we're 
kind of coming to the middle July of this year and we've still not heard anything or seen anything from a draft perspective? I mean, I asked a member of the civil service, what do you think about this before? And their reply was no comment. <laughs> so um, I'm not, not sure if I was supposed to disclose that, but there we go. I didn't say they were off the record. Um, Laurie, from an engineer's perspective, because even though you run a regulatory consultancy, engineering was the thing that you always said to me that you were passionate about. Yeah, yeah. What's the, uh, what predicament are they finding themselves in at the moment? Um, I think it's just we could, well, engineering medical devices and developing those is a really, really challenging job, full stop. You know, we've got so many um, regulations, directives and standards that we need to comply with and getting our devices um, technically up to scratch is, is, is a tough enough job and we could really sort of yeah do without the uncertainty really. Um, I would say that the transitional arrangements now are welcome and I think it does make sense that we're following what the EU are, are doing um, in that respect and that you know they've they've implemented the transition timelines uh, for existing man medical manufacturers. It's nice to see that the UK are following suit um, and giving us that breathing space. Obviously there's the it's kind of mandatory with the <laughs> with the secondary sort of legislation in there but it's just yeah it's just really welcome break I think for people just to give us a bit of breathing space um, and just stick with the familiar territory for now and then once the the new uh, UK regulations come in then it'd be nice to have a clear run at that. Yeah, yeah I think that'd be really welcome. Do you think there needs to be a, a firmer timeline at all? Does that need to be coming? Because at the moment I always see Every time I get a press release that's either from the government or anybody else, it seems to be a different date every time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. It's, the, it. it's like the constant changing, like there's the constant name, that uncertainty. That's the bit, and as engineers and designers, we would prefer to work with uncertainty because innovation in, in by nature has already got quite a degree of uncertainty in it, inbuilt in it you know, already. So to have an extra layer of uncertainty because the regulations keep flexing around, then yeah, it does make it a little bit more challenging for medical device developers. Um, so it would be nice to, I think there'd be two things it'd be nice to see. One is we get some dates that we can stick to so we can have a properly well-defined development pathway. We know what our targets are, we know what our regulatory strategy is and we can work our projects to hit those targets and hit those milestones with reasonable certainty. I think the other thing that would be nice if it's all possible is that they align between um, the UK, uh, well, for the medical device uh, medical device types, so the align between the in vitro diagnostics and the actual just regular medical devices, but I don't know whether we're actually going to see that because we just keep seeing different dates depending on your medical devices. So when clients ask me, well, how long have we got or what rules apply to us, the answer, and it's a typical consultant answer, is it depends, but it really does depend on the nature of your device and your technology. So I don't, I don't think that makes it particularly easy. I think I would have followed Malta's Volvo and just aligned all the dates together. Um, yeah. So, Fiona, I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out here. Where do you think the UK will ultimately end up and when? <laughs> <laughs> That's sorry, a difficult one. Sorry for putting you on the spot there, but... <laughs> um, well, obviously, eventually it will all happen. Uh, but I do think, obviously, there are, there are you know, suppose things are supposed to be happening this year, July 2023. Trend, as Laura's mentioned, you know, it's been pushed back and a transitional, um, uh, I guess, uh, activities in place. And, in, and as far as I'm aware, it's going to be July 2024. But as uh, Laurie says, it depends. 
depends on, I guess, in terms of this this new regulation coming through, it depends on uh, when devices have to be have to be ready to the to the new EU. Uh, sorry, the new UK rules. But I think um, eventually it'll all get embedded, um, and it'll just be a foundational part of um, the medical device uh, sector, um, essentially. And hopefully. Uh, will bring about safer and more efficacious or efficacious, very efficacious uh, medical devices. So I think it's really all about patient safety as well and accelerating, um, trying to accelerate, uh, I guess, the approval processes as well, um, etc., and making sure that all the boxes are ticked. So I think it, essentially, I don't know on dates and timelines really, and uh, to, to Laurie's point, but um, you know it'll happen and it will become foundational. It'll be just be part of our, I guess, medical device sector. Okay. I was going to say just to touch upon as well around the, the timeframes that we're talking about because they are talking about implementation July 2024, and then there's looking at the potential transitional timeframes, and that's dependent on the device type. Um, obviously looking at the certification, CE marking, but generally what they're tending to say is they'll be looking at transitioning uh, to UK requirements by um, between June 2028 and June 2030. I think as well, obviously there could be barriers around notified bodies. I know that the EU are having, um, I guess, uh, barriers in not having enough designated notified bodies uh, to get um, uh, to get medical devices recertified, and I, you know, some of our clients have said, "Do you recertify or do you innovate?" We can't, we don't have money to do both at the moment, and that's a real challenge. And I think in the UK, there's four. Yeah, uh, so at the moment, there's four UK-approved bodies. Um, I know that there's other notified bodies potentially looking at that, but because there is no at the moment regulatory uh, framework, I think the difficulty is, is understanding how you actually become certified as a UK approved body. That's certainly something we've kind of looked into the requirements just recently. And it's um, very difficult to get hold of that information of how to actually become certified. Can I ask what it, the effect that that has on yourselves as regulatory consultants? Because I see quite a well, quite a lot of regulatory consultants popping up all over the place. I mean, and I think it seems to be a very competitive field, but they're going to encounter the same problem with notified body capacity. So how frustrating is it for you at the moment? And how closely do you have to work with certain notified bodies to ensure that, you know, the process is as smooth as possible for your clients? I think the difficulty is, is certainly when people are looking at bringing a new product to market, um, you know, when they're looking at the UK, um, to enter the UK as well, it's looking, okay, going, okay, can we, can we potentially use a notified body that is looking to certify as a UK pro body? Because that makes it a lot easier from a uh, review perspective and certification perspective as well. But the fact that there's only four UK approved bodies and they range as well within the actual um, uh, device types that they certify, um, it makes it a lot harder as well to actually... Um, look for that overall notified UK approved body that could kind of help you see mark UKCA and look to actually certify a QMS system to 13485. So like in a, in a nutshell, when we talk about four approved bodies for the UK, one of those is only designated currently still for just IVDs. So if, if you've got a general medical device, your options are not four, they're even less 
it depends on the device type and technology that your your device category, you know, your device is categorized into as to whether you whether you've even got four. It might be much less, might be like one or two. If it's active, you know, you've got a very, very narrow scope. And the same applies for Europe. Yes, it looks like we've got uh, circa 30 on the, the Nando database there of notified bodies over in Europe. But again, they're not all designated to certify all different types and technologies. So you really need to understand, and that's sort of part of the process that we, we offer, is that understand the type of technology that the customer is developing. And then how many, um, how many certification partners are actually available. So although it looks like a lot in the first glance, when you actually start digging deeper and understanding the technologies involved, you might find that your options are quite limited and you might find yourself in a somewhat of a queue um, you know, to get served by that uh, notified body. Um, and so, yeah, it just sort of, you might find that it's quite limiting in that way. I think that's been a source of frustration for some of our clients is that there's not much to pick and choose from. I think just to add to that as well, like you were saying with regards to it, it's about their uh, availability. So not even just like the product type and the codes that they're certified to, to allow them to certify manufacturers. It's more around the actual resource of the notified body. And what we're finding uh, as a it being problematic at the minute is that some of them weren't even on board. Uh, new clients and that's that's a big issue as well so it's that even restricts it even further so when we look at like you're saying about the medical device uh, notified bodies there's a larger range of them but then we go down to IVDs and uh, it, again it, it restricts uh, manufacturers even more to allow them to bring new product to market because they're just not accepting new clients okay I mean it feels like that you've actually identified an area there that you actually quite like sort of simplify the regulation when it comes to because you you, you mentioned on notified body capacity there's only one that can be just certified just to do IVDs but is do you think there is a, a mechanism that can actually come into play to make it almost easier for them to be able to do IVDs and standard medical devices or or is it a little more complicated than that yeah so there's one one of the four only does ivds so they've got a very narrow scope mm. um and i think it's one out of the four just as active which are, yeah um so there's that that's quite narrowing i think what we are seeing is clients saying well okay okay strategically we've had an extension in the timelines as to how long we can use c mark for we've had an extension into the um between now and the implementation of the uk um, CA mark and the UK regulations. What other options are out there commercially? Like, what is there other sort of workarounds? And a lot of us are sort of going, well, actually, you could go and try CE marking under the medical device directive because that's accepted for the UK market and it's a perfectly viable kind of workaround. You've got the added bonus that you've got a lot more qualified notified bodies there and a lot more to go at in terms of who's designated for you know, the various types and techno uh, technologies that, you know, that they do. So that's sort of one option is that, unfortunately, we might see the current landscape kind of navigating people away from the UK engagement, which is not, you know, it's not ideal, and more towards Europe first, potentially. You've actually touched upon something that I want to come on to right now, and that is the announcement in the re recent announcement in the budget of fast-tracking approvals from the EU, US and Japan. Uh, that was announced in March. This leads me to ask the question about where, the, I, the reason I asked Fiona the question before about where do we end up, it feels like 
there might be a little bit of cakeism going on here in terms of we want to be close but we want to be different. I think the question is how different? So which parts of those particular regs should the UK keep? Which should they ditch? <laughs> I think we're all hoping and wanting much greater collaboration and alignment across the world on uh, medical device and drug uh, uh, regulations. I think it's stifling innovation to a degree, having all of the different variations and nuances in different regions and countries. Um, I think it's very refreshing, obviously that 10 million from the budget's going to the MHRA uh, to fundamentally help uh, fast track approvals. So potentially um, uh, products that are approved in, was it Japan, EU, uh, US, Australia, Canada, um, essentially will go through a fast tracking um, process in the UK um, to, to get them approved quicker than ordinarily would be. So I think that's very positive. I, I do think, um, and we are seeing a lot of alignment. I think we mm. also around the whole um, uh, auditing aspect as well, where there's a number of countries that are auditing and, and using one audit report and sharing those audit reports. So I think that's um, very positive. But I think there's more collaboration to come. Uh, it's absolutely a must, uh, absolute imperative that um, you know things are aligned uh, a lot more than they are. It's just, it's just, it's so complicated at the moment, especially as you know the UK as well, not a part of Europe, but we've still got to comply, uh, etc., to to all the European regulations. If obviously you're um, exporting there, so I do, uh, I, you know, we do see obviously alignment happening. Um, but there's a lot more to come and I think um, ultimately a, a greater collaboration and standardization would definitely benefit um, this industry. And I think as well, you know, with, with that, I mean, yes, it's absolutely, it's injecting the right money in the right place for the MHRA. I think one of the uh, insights we could potentially glean from that announcement as well is the time frame. So we're looking at that 10 million over the next couple of years. So that gives us a flavor of how long change might happen is relatively quickly and I think anything that helps expedite medical devices into the market um, is going to be a good thing. So yes, on the one hand, we've got transition timeframes and changing regula well, pending regulations for the UK, but on the other side, we've got this kind of light at the end of the tunnel um, and this opportunity for more international alignment. So the likes of working um, with the uh, medical device single audit program uh, countries and getting that alignment is just is so welcome you know they've already got they're already working for 13485 for the ISO standard which we know is a requirement under the EU medical device regulations so I think it does make sense to kind of align everything so that these countries on the international stage are, are working in more like collaboration and cooperation with each other Okay, there's uh, one other thing that I want to move on to, and it might be linked to this uh, in a way, but the advance of AI. And Fiona, after last year's, uh, <laughs> after last year's session, you've basically volunteered yourself oh. as our artificial intelligence expert. So. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight as to how AI is going to affect, A, the regulatory process, and then B... AI as a medical device or a use of medical devices because it's two sides of very different coins. So including AI to start with, how difficult is it to include AI within a medical device uh, to begin with? 
So I'm not actually uh, kind of a technical AI expert. Um, but you volunteered but yourself, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have sat on the EU's AI Alliance for the last, uh, which is a group that um, brings together about 4,000 members, uh, which has uh, essentially created a, a trustworthy and ethical uh, document uh, on AI. But that crosses all industries. Um, and that... Uh, EU Alliance um, has been going through a, I guess, uh, a creation of various different assets. So they have a trustworthy and ethical AI document, then they have a kind of uh, what are the controls that need to be in the background uh, for developing um, devices or any system with an AI component. Uh, and it's, it's actually a very useful checklist. So it's on the European Commission's website. It's, it's about 20 pages long of like these are all the checks and controls that need to or advise to be in place. Um, so that exists. And also there's a white paper out there about developing AI um, from a European perspective. I'll get on to the UK in a minute. Um, so those, those documents are very useful and actually were foundational uh, to the new uh, EU AI Act, uh, which is coming into force, which there's a, obviously the proposal um, is already um, out um, again. So European uh, Artificial Intelligence Act will become a regulation. So for example, any, any uh, device or soft or that is using AI will have to be uh, somehow certified. So it'll have to have like a CE certified certification or a UK CE, well, no, actually won't have a UK, it'll be a CE, CE type marking. Uh, so if you want to use AI uh, in, um, in the EU, eventually you'll have to have a, a certification for that. Uh, there will be AI, well, they plan to have uh, AI um, uh, governance bodies in each country as well that oversees it. Um, so, and also, uh, if you don't comply, there's some big, uh, big fines. Um, they're also taking, obviously, a risk-based approach. Uh, they do consider that anything, I guess, within the life sciences sector that's having an impact on uh, potentially patient safety uh, will, uh, will be high risk. Uh, so it's actually worth having maybe uh, a look at that. And also looking at those controls um, that uh, are required or are suggested to be in place for when you develop a, a software or a medical device with an AI component. Um, so that's EU. And we're talking about the UK. Um, for many years, the MHRA have been running an AI change program. Also recently, uh, government came out with their proactive uh, no, not proactive, well it is proactive, pro-innovation uh, artificial intelligence um, uh, strategy, um, which essentially uh, is very, very uh, similar to the, the concepts uh, the EU laid down um, as well. Uh, but it's very, very uh, pro-innovation, not stifling, um, not stifling innovation uh, and not putting down too much uh, regulation. Uh, but actually just guiding principles. So that's on the government's website, or MHRA's website, uh, the overall kind of overarching approach to um, AI uh, development. So there's the MHRA's change program. Like I say, it's been running, I think, for the last three or four years, maybe. Um, and we were lucky to present with them uh, two years ago uh, on this. Um, but also uh, the MHRA and the US FDA and Health Canada have been working um, also on 10 principles for good 
um, machine learning, uh, good machine learning. So it's going to be obviously like a new GXP, GMP, isn't yeah. it? Um, so good machine learning principles. They have 10 principles about um, actually wrote them down. So I shall You've just got your run cue them cards here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's on a pink one. <laughs> so um, just basically the 10 principles are multidisciplinary expertise. So basically ensuring that when you're uh, essentially developing that device with an AI component, having all of the different, um, I guess, stakeholders involved, which probably happens today anyway, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, good software and security practices. So obviously this is fundamental. Um, uh, some of the concerns around AI are obviously safety, security, privacy, etc. Clinical data, clinical study and data sets are representative. Training data sets and test data sets are independent. I'm not going to run through all of these. I'll just pick on some of them. Uh, users have access to the information, knowing, um, you know, users how to use it. Also, end users knowing that it's there's an AI component involved, etc. And also continuous monitoring. So making sure that uh, the devices that are built uh, are continuously monitored, um, et cetera. So those 10 principles also on the MHRA's website. But again, it's good to see uh, the FDA um, and Health Canada and, and the MHRA all working together. Sorry, did that answer your question? <laughs> I think so. I, I have actually got a follow-up, though. This is going to really disappoint you. But do you, I think this is probably a broader question in general about AI, but... Do you think that policymakers and developers have grasped the challenge that AI is actually going to present? Because as well as enormous opportunities, there are concerns out there. Is it going to, do you feel like it's going to be regulated properly within the medical device space? Uh, do, you, do, you think, do you think they're in the right ballpark when it actually comes to, we know how to handle this? I think, I think the regulators are very much embracing AI and, and kind of modern technologies. And I think they have to. Um, I think the regulators are coming up to speed, um, but sometimes I'm not sure whether industry is aware that actually this will be regulated yeah. at some point. I think there's, yeah. there is perhaps a lack of awareness um, that this is coming, um, but there's a lot of useful information out there, I think. I don't know yeah. what... Um, I think it's similar. It's, it's like when you have medical device developers, like we have... Um, varying European directives for different things. So we're looking at waste electronics and electrical equipment. We've got restrictions on substances hazardous to health. We've got low voltage directive. The EU MDR, for example, is not the only thing that regulates your medical device. There may be other safety requirements, whether that's strictly a medical device or whether that's more like a borderline wellness product. Because even if you've got something that's not strictly falling within that classification of a medical device, there might be other directors and safety requirements that apply and to not ignore those. You can't just go, oh, okay, I've got a way to cut free. I don't need to apply the regulations and that's it. There might be other things that you need to apply to your medical device. And I think that's, that's the tie in with the AI is that it's like another, it's another requirement that will sit alongside these wider ranging directives that exist already. And that, yes, it will be, um, it will be applicable to, to different products, including medical devices and, and, manufacturers need to have an awareness of that just like those directives were developed by subject matter experts obviously the regulators are engaging the subject matter experts in AI to make sure that it is uh, well guard you know well guarded well policed um, and that the policies that they're developing are you know robust 
Um, I think from a, speaking from a technologist's point of view, we just find it really exciting. The potential of it is, is really, you know, it's, it's really exciting to be involved and to integrate that into your product. So we look at it probably more from a potential and an opportunities point of view, but I do get the, the point of patient safety and the data management side of it as well, especially when you come to like cyber security. Yeah. And, and I think this is where kind of it's important from the offset when the idea and concepts there is to actually go, okay, let's look at the market. Actually, what are the regulated requirements? What do we need to comp comply with directives? Because like you say, it kind of go between different requirements and regulatory requirements. It's just making sure that you don't get caught out later on. And I think that's why a robust strategy at the beginning um, is always key to this because it's that planning part to understand and not being caught out later on. Because like you say, when we look at like ISO 27001 for cyber security, it's just making sure that all these points are followed um, and preventing any form of recall or issue in future. Actually, the, um, the FDA came out with their um, Consolidated Appropriations Act uh, 2023 back in December and basically uh, billions were given to the FDA, um, uh, the, the Omnibus Act, um, uh, to, and part of that is around medical devices. Um, so there's a couple of really key points uh, impacting a life sciences sector, which is about um, now going forward in your kind of planning, you need to actually outline potential cyber, uh, cyber security vulnerabilities. Um, and go through that risk assessment for, for cyber um, in, in detail. The other item, um, which also is applying to both drugs and devices, um, is the requirement to have diversity action plans now as well. So um, uh, that is coming into force uh, in, in the US and probably the same will follow suit um, elsewhere as well. So I think that's very important, obviously, uh, towards diversity inclusion, including um, kind of uh, you know, different demographics than perhaps uh, would, would normally be easily to identify. So, yeah, two, two key points for medical device, um, I guess, um, uh, organizations for the US market. I've got to touch on the, uh, the, difference, the difference in similarities for devices and pharmaceuticals okay. in a bit. But I just want to come back to something that both Laurie and, and Laura have, have said where Laurie's given the analogy about AI basically sitting alongside all the other regulations you've got to consider, and Laura comes on to strategy. It feels like it, it, it should be a case that if you're actually going through this process, you more or less don't need to think of everything as separate. It has to all be integrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You need to look at sort of what markets you're going into, where are you selling your product, and then understand, okay, based on that, what is your product? Because they've all got different categorizations, different rules apply, and so it's very much dependent on the individual jurisdictions. Now, where we've got international alignment, that's fantastic, um, but right now, it's important to make sure that that's mapped and sort of picking upon Laura's point there, having that strategy in place and mapping that properly, it's gonna be an integral part of your product development um, process. So yes, your engineering and your R&D can carry on with your proof of concept and showing you know, your minimum viable products and getting that sort of you know, breathing life into that in parallel with that, getting your regulatory strategy 
you know, and I on, think this online. is where it's sorry, Laurie. I think this is where it's important then as well to to understand what the intended purpose of your device is, because yep. that can have an impact on the classification that can also impact your route to market as well and the requirements that sit with that. And again, I keep harping on around the regulatory strategy piece, but I think it's a very, very important piece is understanding the markets that you want to go to and actually looking at what are the requirements in them markets. Yeah, because unfortunately, it's not like a one size fits all and that you know we have clients that say, oh yeah, well, it's a class two. And it's like, just because it's something in one jurisdiction, you know, maybe say in the US doesn't, doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be the same device classification and the same restrict the same sort of requirements would apply for say in the UK or, or Europe so it really does depend where the product's going to be going to and equally as part of your product development picking on your point sort of Fiona there that you need to make sure that it's appropriate for those demographics as well so mapping out your users and the intended use and, and making sure all of those pieces are put together um, will really help okay so now we will come on to the bit about pharma as well, because I, from any of your experiences or any of your research or whatever, are they facing as bumpy a road as medical device manufacturers? It's an open-ended question, so feel free to, whoever wants to take that, feel free. Shall I go first? Or do you want to go? Um, so I work in both pharma and medical device, um, crossing, crossing into both. Um, I would say that pharma has been um, obviously has had a very high level of regulated regular has been highly regulated for many many years now. So um, I think f uh, in terms of the regulation, it's very well established, um, and we're used to system kind of validation, etc. This is a normal way of life. Um, so I think yeah, it's already been established. Um, and there are process and principles that you know clearly have to be adhered to, which are now obviously the medical device regulations are coming up to same same standards. Um, I think um, going forward as well, obviously, for example, within uh, good clinical practice, we have the new ICH. So if you look at ICH, uh, the, the ICH website, which is uh, I guess the International Conference on Harmonization, which lays down the guidelines and principles for drug development. There's a huge amount of um, uh, guidelines there on that website. Um, and in terms of and uh, uh, being updated, um, and some of them haven't been updated since the 90s. So, for example, good clinical practice is going into revision three. So, uh, we are getting, uh, or the industry is getting, a new guideline on good clinical practice. Um, which essentially modernizes um, the way in which drugs are, are developed um, and looks at technologies and looks at our world today. I mean, how different is it since, you know, the 90s? I mean, I think in 93, the internet was made public. If you think about, like, the astronomical ex exponential gro growth of technologies, all the guidances have to be updated, mm -hmm. I think, to keep, uh, to keep um, uh, up to date. But I, I do think that... Uh, yeah, I think it, it just farmers already had a lot of established regulations that we're all used to. So uh, I think now, you know, we, we've got new regulations, obviously, UMDR, IVD, etc., new regulations for the for the UK. So I think they're going through that kind of um, evolution now within have been going through within the medical device sector. Yeah, and that does sort of tie in with the combination products as well that, you know, there's going to be that they're not 
totally independent anymore. You know, as we've got increasing number of combined devices, you're going to see the need to align your system. So your quality management systems, for example, they may need to comply with um, the ICH requirements for computer systems validation. You know, and it's and it's stringent. It's a lot more. If you're not used to working along with pharma, um, you know, it's good in some ways because they've paved the way for us in medtech to sort of show us what good looks like. But it's just sort of be prepared that that there it, there's a lot to it. Um, but certainly, I mean, one of the things I would say that is, if you're involved in pharma, there's still that three month consultation going on with the MHRA that started at the end of May. So if that's going to impact you, there's an opportunity to be involved in that as well, and yeah. Okay, I thought you were going to chime in again, Laura, but she's obviously- I, I would try, I was going to get in, but yeah, no, it's fine, I got in there first. She's stolen your thunder. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, I think you've, sorry, I think you've kind of touched upon some of this point, so it's absolutely fine. Yeah, right. sorry. Um, it's, it's funny, as you were saying that, in terms of combination devices before, there was an interesting question put to our uh, speaker from the Department of Health and Social Care on the, uh, on the main stage before. Um, I don't want to do him down or anything, but I think the fact that he found the, the question itself quite difficult to answer sort of speaks to the fact that that is one particular challenge that you would like any new regulatory framework to try and clear up as best as possible. I mean... I don't know if you have any extra thoughts on that. Sorry, what was the question that was asked? I mean, no, sorry, it was a it was a general comment from um, the uh, from the main from the main stage before we had our speaker from the Department of Health and Social Care, who was he had a a question from the audience who said, "I've got a uh, a device which is basically prescribed as a therapeutic, so it's in fact it is a combination device, and given the struggles that they had to answer that question." It feels like that's actually one area that probably needs to be ironed out as much as possible, so ah, we've got right. a clearer framework on it. Yeah. So I know that obviously the EMA have their regulatory science strategy, which actually outlines the need for convergence between um, drug and device, so for combinational products. Um, so they have a strategy around um, converging, um, I guess, those two areas uh, more than it is today. Mm. So um, yeah, that's from, I guess, a uh, European perspective. Well, I think we've actually covered all of our points. We've got 10 minutes left, so we are actually inviting questions from yourselves. If anyone does have a question at all. Uh, but you can also catch two of our panellists here on their respective stands. Laurie is just over there, so she's Literally cheating. Right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, can't and Laura is at stand A31. I'm sure, Fiona, you're going to still be bobbing about the place to, um, yeah. to answer any questions. But does... Anybody have anything that they'd like to put to our panelists in public? Okay. Thank you. Sorry, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so I'm from Australia, so I'm just wondering if we're wanting to bring a product to the UK. Sorry, can you hear me now? Okay. To put it like yeah. that, mate. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm from Australia, so if we're wanting to bring a product to the UK, who do we go to? Because it sounds very confusing at the moment to navigate the whole process. Um, and in terms of also saying the notified bodies, you know, it, it makes it very difficult to understand. So who would, who would be your first port of call? So it's all dependent on whether you've actually got a CE Mart product at present? Yeah. 
Okay, because it, it depends as well whether you're looking to enter the EU market, because if you are, I would say the easiest route at this present moment is looking at CE marking your product, because obviously with the transitional timeframes, yeah. uh, you've got anything up to 2028, 20, 2030 uh, to still market your product of the UK market. Mm -hmm. um, that's still open to debate and we're still obviously looking at the transitional timeframe. So I would say it would be looking at potentially CE marking. If not, with the, you've got the UK approved body, so you could actually look to UK CA mark your device. Um, and what would happen with that is you go through a review, review period with a, a UK approved body. Um, also, as well as part of that, you would need a UK responsible person to, to act a little bit like your EU authorised rep. Yeah. Because um, my understanding in Australia is that EU is in a bit of shambles as well. So um, in terms of accessing notified bodies and that, so... Sorry, could you just repeat? I didn't quite hear that. Apologies. I said that we've been told in Australia that the EU is in a bit of trouble as well with notified bodies and that's taking an extremely long time. So... Yeah, yeah, and that's why we kind of look at the transitional timeframes as well from directive to, to regulation, which doesn't help in relation to entering the, the, the EU market. And, and you're completely right. And I think at the moment they're saying, is there around 8,000 manufacturers out of 27,000 that have been certified under MDR? Uh, hence the reason why they're looking to extend. Um, and certainly there is issues around resource with notified bodies um, to bring them in to allow them to deal with the, the influx of applications. Uh, there is certainly notified bodies out there that will accept. And I'm thinking, can you guys remember how many is certified? Uh, I think is it... Go on, sorry. Yeah, sorry, no, how yeah, many? I think it's about... It was 15 a few months back. Is it? I can't, I can't remember from... Sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's not a substantial amount of, for the EU MDR. And it's then looking at their actual codings. But um, I found that, you know, it's something that we certainly can... We certainly look at and, and work with notify bodies to ask about their availability and, and, and the timeframes for them allowing to certify. I think it's also taken into consideration whether it is around your QMS requirements as well. Yeah, because two years is not really acceptable, so, um, which is what we had an understanding with the EU at this stage, so I'm not sure that strategy is really good. It depends as well on your classification on the EU market. If you're looking at something like um, Class 1, that's self-declared, um, and you've got your QMS to take into consideration, um, and that I think generally is probably, and I'm going to put my neck out here, talk around six months, I think, from, from application. Is it certified in Australia? No, we're just going through that process, Sorry. but we're looking at the... Um, Sorry, I couldn't hear. Not at the moment. Not at the moment. Yeah, so we're looking at some collaborations here. In so I guess UK. the MHRA are putting in their fast track process, aren't they, for uh, countries like Australia, Japan, we mentioned them earlier, to get fast tracking yeah. done. So that could be a potential option. Yeah. That's one of the things that was really welcome out of the, the budget as well. It's like the end of May, there was just like a, a series of different announcements for the, for the healthcare sector overall. And one of the exciting ones was the, you know, the more, align, more aligned ways of working with the international partners. So it really depends where you are on the product development life cycle and what state your technical file is in as to whether you're going to be looking at essential requirements checklist or you're going to be looking at EGSPRs. Um, wh which one you're going for. I mean, one takeaway, you know, having spoken to the notified bodies recently, and this is just to note really, is that 
they're two separate things. So don't expect to be able to get for UKCA when your technical files compiled to EU MDR because it's they're fundamentally slightly different, and so you just need to be one or the other, um, unless you're doing a combined. I think generally you could kind of put the like you were saying the two together depending on the variation classification and put the ERC checklist and the GSPRs into the file like you say, um, but generally what we'd look at is from UK requirements to the MDR there could be differences in classification so it might be from a UK perspective that it's not necessarily it could be a class one but it's been revised uh, under MDR which then comes a notified body scrutiny and like Laurie was saying like would you want to have one file for um, an overview by the notified body well, thank you very much. You've given us five minutes of really interesting discussion there. We'll have you on the panel next year if you, if you want to. <laughs> um, um, does anybody else have anything that they'd like to ask our panellists? Hey, you might get away for an early lunch here, ladies. <laughs> but um, thank you all for attending. If there is actually something that you want to ask the world, they're going to be available yeah. for questions afterwards. So no, yeah, you're, only, you're knocking around the place. Yeah, Laurie has plugged her stand over there at uh, E25, but Laura is right by all the lunch carts if you're hungry, so that's like 8.31. But thank you all very much for attending. We hope you found the session useful. And yeah, please do talk to these guys. They know far more about this than me. I'm just a bit of a nerd who's quite interested in it, and I'll just ask the questions. But thank you all for coming anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.